we should be able to get uh, through the next three books uh, tonight. Um, so Amos, Obadiah and Jonah. Uh, Amos is sort of medium length, but Obadiah and Jonah are very short. So um, therefore we should be able to uh, meander our way through them, you know, sort of uh, no, no problem at all. So we'll start with um, Amos. Um, get the background on him. He, he, he was not what you would call a professional prophet or anything, and he sort of goes out of his way to, to make that clear. Um, he was actually a, a shepherd and a dresser of sycamore trees. And uh, <laughs> so kind of like, you know, sort of like, you know, sheep one day, trees the next. And um, he took the trees up because he thought it might be nice to branch out a bit. Um, and, uh, yeah. Yeah, he had a sheepdog. His bark was worse than his bark, of course. Um, he, he came from Tekoa, uh, which was 10 miles um, south of Jerusalem. So this immediately tells us that of the two kingdoms, the north and south, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, that he was from Judah. So he, he was a prophet of Judah, the southern kingdom. But, whereas he does address himself here and there to the southern kingdom, to Judah, primarily his message was for the northern kingdom. Primarily the message that, that God gave him was for Israel in the north. So he was kind of taken from, you know, sort of like herding his sheep and dressing his, his trees. And, and he was down south, but primarily um, the messages that God gave him concerned the Northern Kingdom. Now let's let's get the, the date and the historical background. Um, while he was prophesying in the south in Judah, where he came from, his own king was Azariah, um, also known as Uzziah. So when you get Azariah or Uzziah, it's two two variations of the same name. And that uh, this was the Azariah or the Uzziah um, who, who died as um, Isaiah was starting his ministry. Remember in Isaiah 6 when Isaiah had the vision of the Lord in all his glory and was taken up into heaven that, that he said in the year that King Uzziah died. Well, that's the bloke here. And he was still alive um, and king in Judah whilst um, Amos was uh, busy doing his, his prophet thing. And uh, up in the northern kingdom, up in Israel, the king there was Jeroboam II. And uh, so he, he was the king up, of the north, uh, up in the north in Israel. So we're dating him around 750 BC. Um, now, he would have been a lad, a, a young boy, when um, Elisha and Jonah were going strong up in Israel. Remember, his message was to Israel. Um, Jonah will come on to later, but Elisha we've already done. We saw him when we were doing the history of Israel. So when he was a young lad, Elisha was doing his thing up in Israel. Remember Elisha followed on from Elijah. And also Je Jonah was on the scene doing his prophetic thing with Jeroboam, uh, with the kings up, up there. And um, and also, he, he was overlapped 
in ministry by Hosea down in the south. Now we did Hosea last time, didn't we? And it's 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 quite possible that he actually worked with Hosea, um, you know, or, or certainly worked very much in conjunction with him. Um, now Hosea would have been younger than uh, Amos was, so. You know, sort of like when Amos was going strong towards the end of his ministry, Hosea was coming on the scene, and um, and, and 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 Hosea sort of like carried on. Um, you know, sort of like after Amos had uh, kind of like finished and gone back to herding sheep and dressing his his sycamore trees, and uh, and, and and at the time that that he's finishing, um, Isaiah and Micah were just getting going down in Judah as well and um, Micah we've yet to do but Isaiah we've seen already so that's kind of like um, you know sort of like his historical context um, so he's he, he's a couple of hundred years or so after the dividing of the kingdom remember when you know sort of like after Solomon the northern kingdom the southern kingdom this is a couple of hundred years after that and about 30 years before Israel, the northern kingdom, was taken into Assyrian captivity. In a later talk, when we kind of wind up the Old Testament, what I'll be doing is, is going through all the prophets and, and placing them in their chronological order. So we'll we'll do a you know we'll sort of like you know spend a bit of time you know and so and so was and, and and then what's his name came on the scene and down in Judah and we'll we'll do one of that we did it with all the kings and we'll do it with the prophets as well so you really get a picture of where each one fits in uh, in relation to the others so so that's kind of like just the background of of Amos and uh, but the main thing to to hold on to is that his ministry was primarily to the northern kingdom to Israel and he was on the scene 30 years or so before the northern kingdom was carted off into the Assyrian captivity. Now we'll, we'll actually move on to the actual book now. Um, chapters 1 and 2 we'll do in one lump and, uh, and he kicks off in the first two chapters um, by announcing judgment that was going to come on, on Israel's neighbours. So he doesn't actually start directly at this point with Israel, but he, he deals with, you know, like the northern kingdom and the neighbours that were round about, some of them Gentile. And uh, he, he starts off with um, Damascus. Now Damascus was the capital of Syria, or Aram as it was called at that point. Um, so he, he starts off pronouncing God's judgment against them. Then Gaza, which was one of the cities of the Philistines, so that was down a little bit to the south and to the, the west. Uh, then he did Tyre, which was up north and a bit west. And then he does Edom, Ammon and Moab. So there's kind of the northern kingdom's neighbours and, and he pronounces God's judgment against them. Then he moves on to prophesy God's eventual judgment that would come on the southern kingdom, Judah. And then, having done that, he then begins to pronounce judgment on Israel, the northern kingdom. And that what you've actually got here, if you try and picture this, you've got Israel in the north, 
you've got Judah in the south. And what he does is that he, he, start, he, he pronounces judgment against all the nations that surrounded the northern kingdom. Then he pronounces eventual judgment on Judah, the southern kingdom. And then he pronounces judgment on Israel, the northern kingdom itself. And it's almost like you've got a noose tightening around Israel. He kind of goes all the way around the periphery, all the kingdoms, the Gentile nations around Israel. Then he does Judah to the south, and then bang, he eventually gets to um, the northern kingdom and judgment against them. So it's almost, you know, it's like on the map, it's almost like you draw it as a picture, if you like, you know, dot to dot almost, like a noose tightening around Israel's neck. And eventually, lastly, he comes to pronouncing God's judgment against Israel. And of course, Israel is the burden that he has for the rest of the book. So it's like God starts with the Gentile nations surrounding the northern kingdom. Then God pronounces judgment against the southern kingdom and then bang, the bullseye. Israel, the centre of it all. Because that's the burden that Amos has. So therefore the rest of the prophecy is a concerning um, God's judgment against Israel, against the northern kingdom. Remembering all the time that 30 years later they were carted off into Assyrian captivity. Now what I want to do um, is, is to actually we're going to have a chance to actually read bits and pieces of the books tonight because it is, you know, we're, we're not fitting too much in so we can be a bit leisurely and meander a bit. And if, if, if you find chapter 2, and I just want to read verses 6, six to 8, and uh, it illustrates one of the major themes in the prophet of Amos, one of the main burdens that he had. And of course, one of the main reasons why God was saying judgment is going to come upon the northern kingdom. So um, this is chapter 2, and this is immediately, he's, 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 gone, he's gone round the map, he's come up through Judah, all right, and the prophecies against the southern kingdom end at chapter 2, verse 5. And now chapter 2, verse 6, the bullseye, and he starts now on Israel, the northern kingdom. And the rest of the book is concerned with this. But look, look, look how he dives in. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. This is a literary device that he uses all the way through, you know, like for three sins and then for four, and it's just kind of like the way he writes. And he goes on, They sell the righteous for silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor, as upon the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl, and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God they drink wine taken as fines. And what you've got there is one of the main burdens that comes through Amos, and it was that of social justice. The northern kingdom um, was kind of, you know, a really oppressive place to live. Um, remember, he's prophesying during the reign of Jeroboam II. And Jeroboam II was reigning at, at the peak of, you know, sort of like Israel almost at the peak of its political and economic power. And it was kind of nearly as wealthy and powerful as it had been years before in the reigns of David and Solomon. 
This was the same, incidentally, of Isaiah or Azariah, two uh, you know sort of two different ways of saying the same name down in in Judah. And uh, but what was happening is that rather than than people saying, well, you know, the Lord's blessing us economically and this is great, thank you, Lord, and and serving the Lord, it was turning into decadence. And one of the major sins that God judges Israel for was the oppression of the poor. That what was happening is that the rich were getting richer and richer and richer, but it was at the expense of the poor. In this verse, like the, the, the poor, you know, they trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground. And so social justice is, is, is one of the, the main themes here. And so oppression of the poor was rife. And this was one of the major reasons why God was going to judge them. And so chapters, you know, that, that, that you know, chapter one and most of chapter two is dealing with the nations and, um, and Judah. But then here at the end of chapter two, bang, goes straight in the main burden against the northern kingdom. And it was this oppression of the poor. So he was crying out for social justice. And of course, the Lord cries out for social justice as well. In chapter 3, he reminds Israel of the privilege um, that that she was God's chosen people. Remember, there were two nations who were God's chosen people. There was the north and the south, and Israel up in the north. And he reminds them of the privileged position that they were in, that they were God's chosen people and then told them that their punishment was going to be all the greater because of that. The judgment was going to be severe precisely because they were God's people. And the point was that that Israel was as bad as these surrounding Gentile nations. Israel was as bad and as immoral and as oppressive and as ungodly as the Gentiles were. And yet the point is that the Gentiles were completely unenlightened. And yet Israel had the law, Israel had the prophets. And so they had sinned against such great light. Therefore, the judgment that was going to come upon them um, was going to be very, very severe. And um, let's just, just read verse 12. This is what the Lord says. As a shepherd saves from the lion's mouth only two leg bones or a piece of an ear, so will the Israelites be saved. Those who sit in Samaria on the edge of their beds and in Damascus on their couches. And what he's saying there is that, yeah, a remnant will be saved because neither the north or the south will ultimately ever disappear and indeed in the thousand year reign of Christ all the tribes will be accounted for again. So yeah, a remnant will be saved. This this is a theme all the way through no matter how severe God's judgment came down on Israel or Judah it's always there that they're always going to survive in one form or another because ultimate restoration will one day come. But this judgment that was going to come upon them is graphically described that yes a remnant are going to be saved but it's going to be like you know after um after a lion has finished with a sheep and there's a bit of leg lying on the ground in a pool of blood and there's a bit of ear but the rest is gone 
And that is what this coming judgment is going to be for Israel. It's going to be like a lion sets upon a sheep. And that was how devastating the Assyrian captivity um, proved to be. And then he, he moves on and he pronounces judgments on the calf worship that was going on at Bethel. Now, you know, sort of, uh, now you'll remember that, that when the northern kingdom was established, their first king, i.e. when the northern kingdom broke away from the south after the reign of Solomon, you'll remember that their first king was Jeroboam. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, continued down in the south as king, but Jeroboam set up this rival kingdom in the north, Israel, the ten tribes. And you'll remember that what he did is he invented a new religion, and its main centre was at Bethel, and Bethel was very near to the border where the the north met the south. And uh, and he, he set up this religion that he concocted himself, you know, worshipping a, a calf. And, um, you know, this, this calf being almost like a representation of God. And, um, and that calf worship continued all the way through. I mean, you know, sort of like, you know, the northern kingdom, this idolatrous religion that they had, um, you know, and, and of all things a calf, you know, just like what happened when Moses came down from receiving the commandments and um, you know and all the way through its history this calf religion uh, kept going at Bethel and uh, you know this was one of the main reasons for judgment on them and so Amos he kind of like rails against this you know sort of telling them that judgment is coming on them because of it and um, and also because of the fact that they were so decadent and um, indeed the two go together you know, the calf worship, because it led them away from God. If you're led away from the Lord, you're led away from being like the Lord is. And of course, the Lord is generous. The Lord is a giver rather than a taker. But here, the rich are trampling the poor. Everyone's a taker. And, um, you know, and so the Lord says to them that, um, you know, that even though many of them have, have got such wealth, that, that, that far from being a sign of blessing from him, that it, it's, it's ill-gotten. And it was, it was ill-gotten through greed and through the oppression of the poor. And Amos tells them that their posh houses are going to be destroyed, which of course happened in the captivity when the Assyrians came in. Not that there's anything wrong with posh houses as far as posh houses go, but their posh houses have been built on the wealth that was accrued from the oppression of the poor. And this was something that God would not stand for anymore. And so his judgment is coming upon them. Their idolatry and their social injustice, the two going together. The idolatry represents that they fell away from, 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 from God. And therefore, because they fell away from him, they fell away from what he was like. And the commandments which issue in loving your neighbour as yourself fell away. And now it's every man for himself. And of course the poor get trampled underfoot. So therefore, part of this judgment is that their posh houses are going to be destroyed. In chapter 4, uh, I'll read this, verse 1. Hear, hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. Um, and, and what you've got here, is uh, you know you wouldn't get away with preaching like this today, would you, Crumbs? 
what you've got here is that this kind of oppression, you know, like the, the rich, that here he's referring to the women, to the wives, and, uh, and he likens them to the cows of Bashan. He's not calling them cows, as in silly cow, you know, like the rather, you know, a dishonourable way that some men might speak to a woman. He's not, he's comparing them to a particular type of cow. And the cows of Bashan were famous, you know, it was a place where they were raised and they were known um, for their quality and the fatness of the herds. And what he's doing, he's describing these very luxuriant but very fat ladies the wives of these rich men who have been oppressing the poor. And, um, and these women, they're, they're, they're always wanting more and more. The point is, whatever they've got, it's not enough. And of course, this is what greed, this is what the love of money does. The love ceases to be for what you can do with the money, but it, it's money itself. And uh, you know this is why you get people that maybe they've earned enough money. Even you know, I mean, I'm talking about the real extremes now. But people have earned enough money. All right, they can do what they like. They don't have to do another day's work in their life. And yet they they kill themselves and work themselves and slave themselves into an early grave. Why? Because it's more money that they're after. They've never got enough. And that's, that's kind of like the picture here of these women. They've never got enough and they want more and more and they sit there, they're, they're, they're immensely overweight, they're very luxuriant and they're just calling out to their husbands, bring me more drinks dear, bring me another fur coat, the one I've got isn't enough, bring me another. And of course their husbands are doing this gladly because, you know, obviously their husbands, they pamper their wives but they're only pampering their wives because they've got so much money themselves. You know, so we mustn't think, oh, the poor old oppressed men. I mean, you know, they've brought this on themselves. Their wives are a, a symbol of what they are. If you want to know what sort of a husband someone is, in a sense, look at their wife. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't go in every, you know, it's not a hard and fast, unbreakable rule, but it, it, it can be a guideline. If you want to know what sort of husband someone is, look at his wife. And, um, and the Lord says to them that... Um, that they would go, well, let's, let's read this. The Sovereign Lord has sworn by His Holiness, the time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. And, and Amos tells them that, that, that the judgment that's coming upon you ladies is you're going to be led away with hooks. Now, now this was actually fulfilled quite literally. And it was fulfilled in the sense that the Assyrians, I mean, dif different nations had different kind of little, you know, ways of doing things. And one of the little ways that the Assyrians had of doing things is when they uh, vanquished a nation and, and, and carted everyone off into captivity as prisoners, um, what they did is they literally, they, they, they had these, these ropes and uh, with a, a massive hook on the end of the rope and they put the hook um, either through the lip or nose. And of course, this made sure that you were a well-behaved prisoner on, on the long trek back to Assyria because the pain created by that. And so these women were literally, when the Assyrians invaded, these women were literally led to Assyria with hooks 
in their noses and in their 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 lips. So that's that's kind of you know, Lord saying th this is the judgment. And then the Lord goes on to um. You know to say that even all their sacrifices to the Lord, because the Northern Kingdom they didn't, as it were, forsake the Lord completely. This kind of calf religion was a halfway house to worshiping Him. Um, you know, we we saw this in the time of Elijah and Elisha, e even when they were worshiping Baal. They weren't worshiping Baal to the exclusion of the Lord. They were worshipping Baal and they were worshipping the Lord. You know, they were backing both horses, as it were. Well, it doesn't pay with the Lord. And, um, and the Lord is saying that their ritualism, because that's all it was to the Lord, their sacrifices to him, even their giving. You know, I mean, all these rich people, you see them chucking their, 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 their money into, you know, giving them to the priests and stuff like this, you know, writing out the big fact checks or whatever. The Lord says it's nothing, that this is all completely meaningless to me. And of course it was meaningless to the Lord because it was, it, it, it was purely the outer appearance. Inside it was all oppression and greed and it was awful. And then Amos lists various judgments which they'd been through in the preceding 200 years of their history. And, uh, you know, i.e. the point being that none of these judgments have brought them actually to repentance. And he, he lists famines. He says, look, there have been famines. That didn't bring you to repentance. There's been drought. You've known drought. Blight on crops. Um, locust swarms eating the harvest. Shades of Joel there. Plagues. Even invasion. None of these judgments had brought the people back to the Lord. And so now, because none of those judgments have brought them back to the Lord, the only judgment left for them now is to be taken into captivity. Obviously, they're not going to be reformed. There's no point the Lord disciplining them in order to reform them. They're beyond that. They've proved that. And so therefore, the ultimate sanction is going to be taken out on them, and they're going to be taken into captivity. And um, in, in verse... 12, um, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, and this is where it comes from. It's one of the favourite verses of the guys, you know, who might, you know, who sort of like they've got the, um, what is it, the boards, you know, with text written on, don't they? What are they called, those? Sandwich boards, that's right, you know, walking up and down Tottenham Court Road or Wall Street in New York or whatever. And one of their favourite verses is, prepare to meet thy God. Now this is where it comes from. It comes from Amos. And um, in verse, verse 12, Therefore this is what I will do to you, Israel, and because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Now, the point is, the Lord is saying here, none of my judgments have reformed you through the years. So there's, there's no reforming you. So now, prepare to meet me. Now, how did Israel meet their God? Well, they met them through the Assyrian captivity. They met the Assyrians because the Assyrians invaded them and desolated them and carted them off. And when the Lord is saying here, prepare to meet your God, it's a reference to the fact you're going to meet me in the Assyrians. 
We've seen this before, haven't we, in the prophets? You know, the idea that the Assyrians, or indeed the Babylonians, as far as the south was concerned when they went into captivity, that these nations that invaded them were actually the sword of the Lord. They may have been pagan nations, but they were the sword of the Lord because God was using them in order to do a work in his people. And so here the Lord says, right, prepare to meet me. I'm coming, and I'm coming in the form of, as they eventually discovered, the Assyrian army. And they met God face to face, <laughs> face to face in the soldiers, in, in, in the soldiers of the Assyrian army. And of course, this was the ultimate sanction against them. And, uh, you know, this was what the Lord has said. It was built into the covenant, into the law. That eventually, if, if, if God sent different waves of discipline and judgment, that if they ignored them all, then eventually the final judgment against them, the final sanction, would be captivity. And that is now what's, what's happening. And in chapter 5, um, you basically get a lament against Israel, and that Amos laments her condition, the fact that, that she's so sinful and yet won't repent. Probably the best thing to do, let's actually read some of the verses. Um, I'll, I'll read verse 1 to 2. Hear this word, O house of Israel, this lament I take up concerning you. Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again, deserted in her own land, with no one to lift her up. And the idea of calling her virgin Israel there is not using the word virgin in a reference to purity. It's using the word virgin in reference to here's a woman that no one wants. She's a virgin because she's been deserted. No one's interested in her. And this is what God is saying. Remember, the Lord was their husband. And he says, I'm, you know, now desertion is all that's happening. But it's not the Lord deserting her. It's her deserting the Lord, wasn't it? We saw this in Hosea. His wife deserted him time and time again. And that was a picture of God's people with the Lord. Um, verse 11 and 12 he says you trample on the poor you force him to give you grain therefore though you have built stone mansions you will not live in them now we're back to the posh houses though you have planted lush vineyards you'll not drink their wine for I know how many are your offences and how great are your sins you oppress the righteous and take bribes. You deprive the poor of justice in the courts. And then verse 21. I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings. Now there you have a reference to the fact that they were sacrificing to the Lord. Part of them, you know, sort of like they were to a certain extent outwardly following the Lord. And here's the Lord saying, I hate it. Though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring me choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, and righteousness like a never-failing stream. Now there you have the Lord saying, religious orthodoxy, without that heart of love inside, the issues in loving your neighbour as yourself, the Lord's not interested in it. And of course we see this in the New Testament in all the teaching about the fact that, you know, if you, if you come to the Lord to present your offering, 
and you've got resentment or unforgiveness in your heart towards somebody, the Lord's not interested. Go and put yourself right with your brother, then bring your offering to the Lord. You see, because if we're to be right with God, we've got to be right with other people. We've got to have that heart of love for others. And we see it here in Israel. You cannot worship God and oppress the poor. The two will not go together. If you love God, you will love your neighbour. If you're not loving your neighbour, you're not loving God. And, of course, we see this in the New Testament. You know, John, for instance, you know, he says, you know, how can you say that you love God whom you haven't seen if you're not loving your brother whom you have seen? The idea is a nonsense. And so here, the Lord, you know, I mean, at, at, at their services, saying, no, I hate it. I've got no time for this. I'm not listening to your prayers. I'm not receiving your sacrifices. And I hate your harp playing. Not because it was bad, but because it was hypocritical. And that's the point. Uh, chapter 6, and um, read verse 1. He says, Woe to you! who are complacent in Zion, that, that's Judah, that's, Mount, that's Judah down in the south, and those of you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, that, that was Israel, that's the north. He's saying, no, you may feel very smug. Remember, all the false prophets were saying, peace, peace, God's going to bless us, God's going to bless us. And when the real prophets were raised up and said, God's going to judge us, he's not going to bless us, he's going to judge us, they were called doom and gloom merchants and they were oppressed and they were persecuted all right take it from verse 4 what a description of the people you lie on beds inlaid with ivory well that's an expensive bed and lounge on your couches you dine on choice lambs and fattened carved you strum away on your hearts like david and improvise on musical instruments you drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions, but you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph, as you know, like themselves as a nation. Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile, i.e. the rich. Your feasting and lounging will end. Are you really getting a flavour of, of, you know, of the message that Amos has? And... Um, then he, he, he goes on and, and, and the Lord says that he, he hates their, their pride and, um, and that because of it he's going to bring them to nothing and that judgment is inevitable. That now the judgment is going to come and there's nothing that can be done about it in any way at all. And uh, in chapter 7, this is a bit of, um, bit of a variation on the rest of it, um, at this point the Lord shows Amos two potential judgments. I, the Lord, says, well, look, there's a couple of judgments I could lay on Israel right now. Um, the, the first one is a locust plague. Now, we saw in Joel that that's a pretty heavy judgment. That was, that was bad news. And uh, so the Lord says, how about a locust plague? I could send a locust plague on Israel. And Amos intercedes for that. He prays. He says, no, Lord. You know, sort of like, no, don't do that. Have mercy on your people. And at Amos's prayer, the Lord relents. He says, okay, I won't do it. You've interceded, I won't do it. Then the Lord says, well, now I can do judgment by fire. Now that's the phrase you get. I mean, it's not specified what that judgment is, judgment by fire. Maybe it's a drought. 
because of course if you get a drought then eventually you get brush fires and things like that so maybe it was that but it doesn't actually specify but whatever it was whatever this judgment by fire was again Amos prays he says Lord have mercy on Israel have mercy on the people and the Lord relents he says okay you've prayed for them I won't I won't do it I'll spare them these judgments and then after that the Lord shows Amos a plumb line you know, a plumb line that you, you hang it up and it dangles down, our law of gravity, and, and it's how you know, you know, a kind of like a building is absolutely upright. And what the Lord was saying to them through this, he was saying to Amos, he says, through this, look, the people, these people are bent. That's what he's saying, they're bent. This plumb line demonstrates straight, doesn't it? And the Lord is, is showing Amos how totally bent how totally out of line the people were. And so the Lord says, because they're so bent, because they veered so far away from me, because they're so out of true, therefore I'm going to send calamity and there's not going to be any more interceding. Sorry, Amos, even your prayers. We saw in one of the other prophets that the Lord said, look, even if Job and Daniel were down there praying, I wouldn't relent. Judgment is going to come. And so the Lord demonstrating to Amos through this, you can't intercede. I, the inevitability of judgment has come. You cannot intercede for the people, so don't bother. Just keep proclaiming the message. And, uh, and the Lord tells him that this calamity, this ultimate judgment that's going to come, was going to be destruction by the sword, i.e. the Assyrian captivity. Then in chapter 8, the Lord shows Amos a basket of, of ripe fruit. And because um, now he's, he's showing Amos, he's giving Amos these pictures, these parables of the nation. And he, he shows him a, a basket of, of ripe fruit. And, uh, and, and the point being, it symbolizes Israel and Israel's ripeness for judgment. In the same way that that fruit was ripe for the picking, so Israel is now ripe for judgment, and so that judgment is going to come upon them. And then the Lord reiterates to Amos why the judgment is going to come on them. And, and he, he says, and he lists, he lists greed, dishonesty, and brutality against the poor. And so the Lord is saying to Amos, these are the reasons why the judgment is inevitable. It can't be held off in any way at all. And then he says that more than that, there was going to be a famine of the word of the Lord, as well as complete destruction. So not only was the nation going to be destroyed completely, but there'd be a famine of the word of the Lord, i.e. he wasn't going to speak to them anymore. If there's a famine, there's no food. A famine of the word of the Lord is there's no word from the Lord, i.e. God's not going to talk to them anymore. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And then in chapter 9, Amos has a vision of the Lord standing by an altar. And this is possibly, though we can't be sure, the actual calf worship altar at Bethel. And, um, and Amos sees the Lord standing by this altar. And the Lord proclaims the inevitability of judgment and how Israel is going to be punished as surely as the surrounding Gentile nations are going to be punished as well. And Israelites never had any doubts about God punishing the Gentile nations. They were absolutely sure about that. And the Lord is saying, right, you're sure about this, but now you can be sure that I'm going to punish you as well. And indeed, the 
captivity, the Assyrian captivity came upon Israel uh, just 30 years later. And obviously all the prophecies of uh, Amos were then fulfilled. But it ends the last couple of um, verses and um, ends with a, the, the promise, as all the prophets do, of the eventual restoration of Israel in the future. And just, just read from verse 13 to the end uh, through to verse 15. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the ploughman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. I will bring back my exiled people Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. And that is a reference, obviously, we know um, from the New Testament to the thousand-year reign of Christ, when Israel will be in the land, never to be uh, taken from it again. So eventual restoration is promised. The Assyrian captivity is going to come, the destruction of Israel, the northern kingdom, but eventual restoration will happen. Right, so we can say a boom-boom there for Amos. So that brings us on to Obadiah. And um, Obadiah has the um, kind of like the privilege of, of having written the shortest book in the Old Testament. Just 21 verses, that's all. And uh, so, so you can see that it will not take us long to do Obadiah. Um, and nothing is known of Obadiah outside of this book that we've got. So I can't tell you anything about him I, I, uh, at all, because we just do not know. All we have is his book, all right, you know, the prophecy of Obadiah. And um, we can't even do it chapter by chapter, I'm afraid, because there aren't any chapters, just one. So, um, but I'm not going to do it verse by verse, because that might take too long, and we've still got Jonah to do. So, therefore, all right, the prophecy of Jonah, this is dead simple. It, sorry, Obadiah, did I? I said Jonah, no, Obadiah. This is a prophecy of judgment against the Edomite nation because of its oppression of Israel. So this is a prophecy against Edom. We've seen this in the past in the prophets. Like, for instance, there were prophecies against the Babylonians, how God's judgment was going to come on them because of their oppression of Judah. They took Judah into captivity. And, of course, what you get is this thing that the Lord, God, God's people, the nation, Israel or Judah, fall away from the Lord and will not get right with him. So the Lord used Gentile nations to punish them. But that meant that the Gentile nations were oppressing Israel. Now, if you oppress Israel, you incur on the promise that God made to Abraham that whoever blesses Abraham will be blessed, whoever curses him will be cursed. So therefore, any Gentile nation that oppresses Israel, even if it's being used as the sword of the Lord to punish her, will itself eventually be judged for having oppressed Israel. And the Edomites frequently oppressed Israel. They were always invading Israelites. You know, Israel, I mean, you know, sort of like when, when Israel was right with God, Edom was a vassal nation. You know, but when, when Israel got out of fellowship, one of the first things that happened is that Edom, you know, bit, you know, a bit like a yappy dog, Think of Edom as a yappy dog. 
would, would start snapping at Israel's heel and, and start invading it. And so the Edomites were always trying to have a go at Israel and uh, oppressing them. And uh, so therefore, this is a prophecy of judgment against them because they've been oppressing Israel. Now, Edom, Edom was to the, the southwest of the northern kingdom, just, just kind of um, the other side of the Dead Sea. And, um, and you'll remember that the Edomites came from Esau. Esau was Jacob's brother. Remember, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, all right? Jacob's brother was Esau, okay? And uh, it was Esau who sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. Remember, you know, Jacob conned it out of him. And of course, it was in the line of Jacob that the Jewish nation came about. Esau, who was disinherited because he was more concerned about his stomach than he was about the Lord. Um, Esau went off and he fathered the Edomite nation. And, uh, you know, so, so he was kind of like, as it were, the rejected one. And, um, you know, so therefore Edom is always there. Esau always oppressing Jacob. Because Jacob was chosen and Esau wasn't. And, um, and they're told, the Edomites are told by Obadiah, that they are to be destroyed as will all Gentile nations who oppress Israel. And the prophecy then goes on to tell Edom that Israel faces an eventual golden future, which of course we know it does ultimately in the millennium, the thousand year reign of Jesus. So Edom is here told, you have oppressed Israel. You are going to be destroyed. But Israel has a golden future. And this prophecy was fulfilled um, just four, four years after, the, um, after Jerusalem fell to the Babylonian Empire. And uh, because four years after that, Nebuchadnezzar did mopping up operations. And one of the nations that he mopped up was Edom. The difference was that Edom was destroyed, never to be heard of again. It was totally destroyed. Israel is still going strong to this day and is going to go even stronger in the thousand-year reign of Christ. So Edom was destroyed. This prophecy was fulfilled four years after the Babylonian captivity of the southern kingdom because Nebuchadnezzar, he marched on Edom, completely destroyed it. Right, that's Obadiah. That didn't take long, did it? Jonah. Bit of a fun one, Jonah. Jonah's... A kind of example, everyone knows the story of Jonah, but it's only when you know the background and the historical context that it really makes sense. And it's especially in the light of the fact that Jesus, do you remember that Jesus said to um, the Jews of, of, of his day that no sign will be given you except the sign of Jonah? And uh, so, so it's good to um, understand the background to Jonah. He's, the way he acted, as we're going to see, will, will kind of make more sense. I don't mean to say that the way he acted was justified, but it will make more sense to you knowing the, uh, the background. Um, now, Jonah, was, uh, he was from Israel. He was northern kingdom based. And uh, his, his ministry was to Israel. Um, and uh, he, he, he was around towards the end of Elisha's ministry. And um, he was kind of like, you know, Amos and Hosea came on the scene 
just as kind of um, just as uh, Jonah was winding up and getting a bit old, and um, and they came on the scene with their prophecies of the Assyrian captivity. So Jonah is going strong; he's prophesying in the Northern Kingdom. Amos and Hosea are raised up and begin their ministries. And through Amos and Hosea are the prophecies that Israel, the northern kingdom, is going to be judged by being taken into Assyrian captivity. And it's probably around this time, after Jonah knows that Israel is going to be judged by the Assyrians, it's just after that time that the events covered in the book actually take place. Now, we saw Jonah before, albeit only a brief mention, when we did two kings, in fact, in chapter 14. And uh, he was helping Jeroboam II. Jeroboam II, Amos, came up on the scene when Jeroboam II was ruling. Well, Jonah, in his prophesying, he aided Jeroboam II in retrieving various bits and pieces of the land that the northern kingdom had lost in past years to the um, invading Arameans of the Syrians, as they became later called. So Jonah has kind of, as it were, two incarnations in the Bible. In Kings, we see his uh, kind of function as prophet to the king, helping God's people spurring them on to regain from the enemy what they've lost, okay? And that's what he was doing vis-a-vis -vis Jeroboam II, okay? And, um, and as we, we've seen, Amos came on the scene during the reign of Jeroboam II as well, comes up from the south and he's prophesying and he's telling people that the north is going to be taken into Assyrian captivity, all right? So the situation that Jonah is in is this. His ministry, insofar as he's working with the king, all right, what he's done is he's seen the northern kingdom Israel restored to her former glory. I.e., when the nation first formed 200 years earlier, they had the whole of the northern kingdom, they had the whole land. In the ensuing 200 years that followed, they kept losing bits of land, not least of all to Edom, in fact, who we've just seen got sorted out by Obadiah. And they lost various bits of land, particularly to the Arameans, the Syrians, who kept invading and taking bits and pieces of the land. Now, Jonah has lived to see the Lord give them all that land back, so that, you know, so that now the northern kingdom is backed, it's got all the land, it's back at the zenith of its power. Although, tragically, it's all turning to decadence and the greed and the selfishness that we've seen in the prophecies of Amos. But knowing that through his ministry, the northern kingdom has been restored to its former glory and they've got all the land back, I, him prophesying, saying to the king, go out, do this battle because the Lord will give you victory, blah, 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 all right. Having, having seen that happen, he then obviously eventually comes under the ministry of Hosea and then uh, Amos and then Hosea. And he's informed through them, and obviously he would know that they were prophets, so he believes it and accepts it, that in just a generation's time, 
All this is going to be for nothing eventually because judgment is going to come on the land anyway and they're going to be carted off into captivity by the Assyrians. So this is the situation that Jonah is in personally. His ministry, his, his main work during his life has been working with the king, Jeroboam II, prophesying to him. We don't know what the prophecies were because they're not written down. We just know from two kings that through his ministry, Jeroboam II was able to get the land that the northern kingdom had lost. So this was his life's work, Jonah's life's work, seeing the land restored fully. And he's seen that, and it's great. He would marvel in that. Then, other prophets come on the scene, telling the people that in another 30, 40 years, they're going to be carted off into captivity by the Assyrians. Then, Jonah is sent on a mission of a completely different kind. And he becomes now, not a prophet to God's people, but he becomes now an evangelist to Gentiles. But bear in mind that having spent his life seeing Israel restored, he then hears through prophets from God that the Assyrians are going to eventually completely destroy his nation, Israel. He's then called by God to be an evangelist. To whom is he sent? He is sent to Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Now, can you now see the background? Why he was, to say the least, a myth but being the means of blessing to the people that he now knows are going to eventually destroy Israel completely. Now that's the background. So we can move now straight into chapter 1 and he's commanded by the Lord to preach to the Ninevites, to go to the capital of Assyria and preach the gospel to them. And he's horrified. These, this is the nation who in 40 odd years time are going to destroy everything he loves. And the Lord now sends him to go to Nineveh and to preach in the capital city. Now in order to get to Nineveh um, from where he was in Israel you travel due east. So the Lord's told him to go to Nineveh. He catches a ship to Tarshish, which was due west. But not only was Tarshish exactly the opposite direction, God has told him, go to Nineveh, that's east. He hops a ship and he heads west to Tarshish. But it's not just that he's heading in the opposite direction, at this point in history, Tarshish thought actually to be in Spain. We can't be sure of that. We think it was Spain. Tarshish was the western extremity of the then known world. So therefore, God has told him, go to Nineveh and preach. That's east. He literally gets heads for as far away from Nineveh 
as it was geographically possible to get. You see what I mean? This would be like, for instance, say the Lord told me, Beresford, go and preach to the North Pole. I jump on a boat and I head for the South Pole. That is literally what he does. And he is saying, Lord, not in a million years am I going to preach to Nineveh. Right, so he's on a ship and he's heading towards Tarshish. He is literally heading as far away from Nineveh as it was possible for him to get. So he's on the ship, heading away in the opposite direction. And a great storm arises and uh, the ship is put in great danger. And uh, so everyone on the ship, all the sailors know that, that death is not far away. The storm is that bad. And the sailors all cry out to their respective gods. I mean, they, they, I mean, you know, some of them would have believed in the same gods. Some of them would have had their own personal gods. But all the sailors on board the ship, they're all crying out to their gods. Jonah is fast asleep. Now, there are lots of ironies and contradictions in Jonah, which we can all identify with in our own lives. Because why is Jonah fast asleep? Someone else managed to sleep through a storm. Jesus did. And Jonah, he's fast asleep. Now, why is he fast asleep? Well, he's running away in the opposite direction. He's been completely disobedient to the Lord, but he's completely at peace because he trusts the Lord. And he's got no fear of death anyway, so he knows he's going to be with the Lord. So he's fast asleep. Now, can you see that contradiction? We all know that, don't we? This is a classic example of the Lord putting his finger on something in Jonah's life. But even though Jonah's been disobedient, he's not out of fellowship yet because of all the grace. It's, this is the beginnings. I mean, when God says, do something, there are many things that the Lord says, do something. And we sort of like, you know, pardon? You know, we, I didn't hear that, Lord. And even though we're going against the Lord, we're still in fellowship because it's the early stages, you know, the Lord giving us grace. It's the preparation, you know, sort of like for whatever it is that the Lord's doing. So although, you know, sort of like, you know, he's, he's running away from the, well, he's not running away from the Lord. He's running away from any possibility of doing what the Lord's told him to do. And the Lord understands why it is. He hates the Ninevites. The Lord understands that. Doesn't agree with it. The Lord eventually gets him to the point where he repents of that, as it were. But the Lord understands and he gives him plenty of rope. And, uh, you know, so even though Jonah is running away from God, you know, what God wants him to do, there's this massive storm. Everyone else is freaking out in fear of their lives. Jonah, a believer, peace, at peace, he's fast asleep. And um, so the captain wakes him up. I, I suppose the idea being that we're all freaking out, mate, so you can wake up and freak out too. I mean, if you're panicking, then, then, then there's the desire, isn't there, that if anyone's not panicking, you want to get them panicking as well, because panic spreads, doesn't it? And, um, and so what they do now is that they, they cast lots in order to find out which, which of the people, are, who, who on board has fallen out with their God. I mean, the kind of like, they all conclude this storm is such a bad storm. This is a judgment. This is a divine judgment. Someone has fallen out with their God. 
So let's cast lots to find out who it is. Now, this is, this is pure pagan practice. This is virtually occultism. But nevertheless, God is sovereign. God overrules over everything, even occultism and the power of Satan. And so the lot casts, falls to Jonah. And so all the people say, it's you, you have fallen out with your God. Now Jonah kind of knew that this was true, because he knows he's running away from going to Nineveh, which is where the Lord wants him to. So here, <coughs> Jonah is actually convicted through unbelievers. God is actually using these unbelievers to convict Jonah. And um, so what he does, and again, we're back to the contradiction. He says to them, yeah, it's me. I'm the one who's fallen out with, with their God. And uh, so he says, look, he said, throw me overboard. And then, you know, because this ship is only in trouble because I'm on it. Throw me overboard and then the ship won't be in trouble anymore. Now, there's two things there. Firstly, he genuinely didn't want anyone else to suffer because of the work God was doing in him. So there's still a love of his neighbour, all right? So th these guys on the ship, he, he doesn't want them to suffer because of him. And there's a reason for this. They're not Ninevites, are they? So he's saying, throw me overboard. And the second thing is that being thrown overboard still appeals to him more than going to Nineveh because they're the people he hates. These aren't the guys he hates. It's the Ninevites he hates. So it's the Ninevites he's not going to, see. <coughs> so he says, right, look, chuck me overboard, no problem, then the ship will be safe. And uh, so he is, they chuck him overboard and uh, he, he was happy. He might be going overboard, but he wasn't going to Nineveh and that's all that mattered to him. He didn't care where he went, as long as it wasn't Nineveh. And he's promptly swallowed by a big fish not a whale that's just one of the myths the bible doesn't say it was a whale the bible says it was a big fish and whales aren't fish are they and uh so anyway there's nothing to state it was a whale but it was a big fish and he remains inside the belly of this fish for three days and three nights that's how long he's in there and that concludes chapter one now in chapter two he, he, he prays from inside the belly of the fish, all right? And uh, you get a kind of um, a, a psalm of praise to the Lord for saving his life and not letting him drown, all right? So that's, that's what chapter 2 is. And, uh, and then chapter 2 finishes with uh, verse 10. And the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land so he gets sicked up now on a beach so he's out of the belly of the whale now then chapter three let's read the first three verses then the word of the lord came to jonah a second time go to the great city of nineveh and proclaim to it the message i give you jonah obeyed the word of the lord and went to nineveh now, because he knew ultimately, he was realising he was going to go to Nineveh. <laughs> Before the incident with the storm and a fish, he wasn't going to Nineveh, but he's kind of got the message. He knows now that it's a waste of time. He's going to Nineveh. There's nothing he can do not to. 
Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days, and sort of like in the Hebrew there, I, what it's saying it would take three days to walk round it. It was so big. It was an immensely busy, prosperous, massive, ancient city. So, basically, he obeys the Lord and he goes there. And the message that God gives him, that he preaches, I mean, obviously, you know, he, he'd have gone all, you know, like, just travelled round Nineveh, find a street corner here and a marketplace there and preach. And what he was preaching was that in 40 days, God will destroy the city. Now, he was happy with that. That was a message he could get his, 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 his tongue round, you know. In 40 days, you're going to be, you know, destroyed. So at this point, it's actually working out better than he thought. Because it's a message of destruction that he's preaching. He didn't realise that. He thought he was going to preach the gospel. But he's not. He's preaching judgment. So that he's quite happy with. Now, four things happen. All right? Number one, the Ninevites believe him and repent and fast. The second thing that happened is that this news got to the king, that all over the city his subjects were repenting at the preaching of Jonah and that they were fasting. So the king repented as well, put sackcloth and ashes on and sat in the dust which was the ancient way of how they said, I am utterly and totally repentant, I'm changing my life. The third thing that happens is the king then passes a decree declaring that repentance and fasting was going to be the actual law of the land until further notice. <laughs> so the king hears that his subjects are repenting and believing on the Lord. The king hears that and he repents and believes on the Lord. The next thing he does, he makes it law that everyone's now got to believe on the Lord and repent, all right, just in case some of the subjects weren't. And, um, you know, and then the fourth thing that happened is that the Lord has mercy on them and spares them and says, you're not going to be destroyed in 40 days. Now this brings us to chapter 4. And we find chapter 4, Jonah with a very bad case of the sulks. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, and this is what he says, O oh Lord, is this not what I said while I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you're gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, a God who relents from sending calamity, Calamity. Now, O oh Lord, take my life away. It's better for me to die than to live. And he's sitting there salty. He says, I knew this was going to happen, Lord. If I preached it, they'd get saved. That's why I ran away. I didn't want them to get saved. I wanted you to judge them. I didn't want you to forgive them. I didn't want you to have mercy. I knew that you were compassionate, Lord. I knew that you'd spare them. That's why I ran away because I wanted them to be destroyed. And he is sulking. He's in a dreadful state here. And, um, you know, he wants to die. He literally wants to die. He's suicidal. He cannot live knowing that these people have been spared because he hates them so much. They're the nation who eventually are going to destroy his land. And he hates them so much. And so what he does now the, verse 5, Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. 
There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. What he does now is he kind of, he waits to see what happens just in case. There's a one in a million chance that God might change his mind and judge them after all. So he's sitting there watching just in case. Because if God does judge them, he doesn't want to miss it. He'd, he'd want to see that destruction with his own eyes. And, uh, and the Lord says to him, have you any right to be angry? Because he is, he's livid. Um, what happens now is that the Lord causes a large vine to grow over his head to shelter him from the sun. Because he's sitting there in the baking sun. And, uh, you know, hope, just hoping, one in a million chance that the Lord might yet destroy the city. And he's sitting there in the sun, just hoping, oh, go on, Lord, destroy it. See? And the Lord, this, this vine grows really quickly and it, it gives him shelter. And he's, um, he's very happy about that. And uh, so he's sheltered from the sun and then night comes and, he, you know, sort of then there's shadow. Obviously, the sun goes in, he kips, he wakes up the next morning. And, uh, and as the sun rises, the Lord arranges for um, a worm to eat the vine and, uh, and, and, and to kill it. And um, so, so now he's sitting there in the sun again. And he's not a happy man anyway, but now he's getting a bit of the old sunstroke. And now he gets angry at the worm for destroying the vine. Now, whether he's actually sitting there shouting at the worm, I don't, it wouldn't surprise me. He's in a dreadful state, but now he's angry with the worm because the worm has destroyed the vine. And the Lord now speaks to him. And what the Lord says to him, well, he rebukes him. And he rebukes him on the basis that he was more concerned about the well-being of a plant than he was of a city of thousands and thousands of people who had got saved and escaped judgment. So what's happened is a plant has been destroyed and he's angry at the worm that destroyed it. So he's angry because a worm has been hurt, as a vine has been hurt. But he's not happy that thousands of men, women and children are going to be spared judgment. And what the Lord is showing him is that his, his, his hatred against them was so much that he had more consideration and respect for a plant than he did for those people. And, 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 and so, you know, basically now he's, he's, he's kind of like, you know, convicted up, up to the eyeballs. And, uh, you know, I mean, there's a real sense, you know, I mean, perhaps one of the great lessons from this book is, you know, thank the Lord that he isn't like Jonah. Because Jonah was, was not gracious and abounding in steadfast love, was he? I mean, he did not like the Ninevites. He didn't want the Ninevites to be saved. But the Lord did. And, you know, so therefore, the, the story ends with the Lord saying, should you not have been concerned about that great city? And so Jonah learns the lesson and that he's eventually become the means of, of, of the Lord saving that whole city. And so we see there a great contrast. It's just sort of like reminiscent of the time when um, James and John, when Jesus was um, speaking in, in Samaria. And remember, the Jews hated the Samaritans, didn't they? You know, I mean, uh, he hated the Ninevites. Well, you know, the Jews hated, uh, you know, in the time of Jesus, they hated the Samaritans and the Samaritans rejected Jesus. And James and John said, Lord, shall we call fire down from heaven 
you know, Allah Elijah. <coughs> and Jesus said to them, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. And Jesus said, I didn't come, I came to save. I didn't come to destroy, I came to save. And that they were just itching to see judgment come down on those people. Whereas Jesus was just itching to see people spared judgment because he died on the cross for them. And so you see very much the same thing in this story in regards to Jonah. The Lord wanting to save people, but Jonah, you know, kind of Jonah wanting to see them harmed, wanting to see them hurt, because he personally didn't like them. <coughs> and so really it's the ultimate teaching against prejudice in any form whatsoever. And also it helps us to see a bit more why it was that Jesus said to the Jews of his time that the only sign that they were going to be given was the sign of Jonah. Because you remember that Jesus came on the scene and based on the teaching of Pharisaical Judaism at the time, <coughs> there were various signs, various miracles that only Messiah could work. One was healing leprosy. One of them was casting out deaf and dumb spirits. Now Jesus came on the scene and he did both. So he was giving them signs that indisputably showed them he was the Messiah. Not just fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, but he was even fulfilling their teaching that hadn't come from the Bible. So they knew, kind of beyond doubt, that he was Messiah. <coughs> and, and after the incident where Jesus has uh, cast a deaf and dumb spirit out of somebody, which on the teaching of the Pharisees was a messianic sign, they turned around and said, no, you've done this by the prince of demons. This is demonic. Now they knew that Jesus was the Messiah, but they said he was of Satan. Now after that, they kept saying to Jesus, give us a sign. And you'll remember that Jesus responded by saying an evil and adulterous generation asked for a sign. Now the point was that they'd had signs. They'd had all the signs that they could ask. Jesus was healing people all over the place. But more to the point, he was healing lepers and he was casting out demons that didn't speak. And they knew that he was Messiah. And yet they ignored those signs and they kept saying, give us another sign, all the time pushing him, i.e. it wouldn't have mattered what Jesus did, they weren't prepared to believe. And from then on, when Jesus asked them for a sign, his reply was always the sign of Jonah. The only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah, i.e. is that you've got your Old Testament scriptures, read Jonah, that's the sign you get. Now the sign of Jonah works twofold. Firstly, the fact that Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights is used as a parable or a parallel of the fact that Jesus was in the bowels of the earth for three days and three nights. Because when he died on the cross, he went down uh, and, and he was in, in paradise for most of the time, but he zapped over to Tartarus, didn't he, where the demons were. But he was in the bowels of the earth, in the centre of the earth, for three days and three nights, and then he was raised again from the dead, in the same way that Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, and then was sicked up back onto the earth again. So the sign of Jonah was the sign of being raised from the dead. All right? Resurrection. That was the sign, the first part of it. 
And what Jesus was saying, the ultimate sign is I'm going to be raised from the dead. But also, he raised Lazarus and Jairus' daughter. So the only signs that Jesus would give them after that was raising people from the dead and culminating in the fact that he was going to be raised from the dead as well. So the three days and the three nights of Jonah in the belly of the whale was a parable, a kind of a prophecy foreshadowing the fact that Jesus was going to be in the depths of the earth for three days and three nights and he was going to be raised again from the dead. So that's the first aspect. But the other aspect of Jonah, why Jesus said, look, the only sign I give you is the sign of Jonah, and this gets completely overlooked, is the fact that Jonah was sent to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles got saved. And of course the point is that because Israel rejected Jesus, what happened? Jesus went to the Gentiles. Because Israel as a nation rejected him, he rejected Israel, Israel was destroyed and salvation went to the Gentiles, the church. Israel was replaced with the Gentiles and all the way through the ministry of Jesus, all the time he was warning them, if you reject me, then you're going to be rejected and salvation will go to the Gentiles. And that's what happened with the church. In the future, Israel's going to be restored. But that's what the sign of Jonah is all about. Jonah in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights. That foreshadowed the crucifixion and Jesus being raised again from the dead. But also, Jonah was an Israelite, a prophet of Israel, who was sent to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles received the gospel. And yet Jonah hated every minute of it, because he hated the Gentiles. And so the other aspect of the sign of Jonah was that, the fact that the Jews were in danger of being rejected and the kingdom could go to the Gentiles, which is exactly what happened. Um, Allah, Nineveh got converted, and Israel was rejected, and the Gentiles, i.e. the church, believed on Jesus more readily than his own people. John's Gospel, he came to his own people, but his own people received him not. And because Jesus' own people, the Jews, didn't receive him, he went to another people who weren't his people, the Gentiles. And so that is what uh, the sign of Jonah is all about. And, uh, you know, but on the other hand, Jonah is, is, is a marvellous, you know, he's someone you can identify with. <laughs> he really was. He knew what it was to disagree with God and strongly and to, to do everything he could to get out of God's will, only to discover that because he was a disciple at heart, the Lord brought him back into his will and eventually Jonah ended up bending to what God wanted him to do and he learned the lessons of that and so the point is he's a classic example there's the psalm isn't there about you know sort of don't be like a horse or a mule without understanding that's led by bit and bridle there are two ways of going where God wants you to go you can follow on behind him all right or you can dig your heels in in which case he'll put a bit in your mouth and he'll drag you there kicking and screaming you're going to get there but it's so much easier to get there following behind him rather than being dragged, kicking and screaming. And uh, Jonah, he did do God's will, but he did it via a storm being thrown overboard and being eaten by a fish. And that was the long way round. And uh, often we go that way. But um, there are times as well when we can think, oh, yeah, if I rebel against God here, I'm going to go the long way round and God's going to have his way in me anyway. Oh, I know. I think I'll learn from the sign of Jonah and I'll just give in now. 
But even if you don't, the Lord will get you there eventually, even though you kick and scream all the way. Right, same time next week, same channel.